Welcome to Glock Radio. The following broadcast is made possible by the friends and partners of CYI Worldwide Ministries and Glock Radio. And the views expressed in this program and by our guests may not necessarily reflect those of CYI Worldwide Ministries or its staff. And now, enjoy the show. You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean falls, calls you to enter into deeper waters. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. I hope you all enjoyed uh, the show we had a couple weeks ago since I wasn't able to do one last week because I was busy doing a wedding. Yep, my first one and thoroughly enjoyed it and the couple are still very, very happy together. So let's hope that stays that way. But today we've got a very interesting topic. Today we're talking about evil. That's right. The problem of evil, and why is it a problem? And to do that, I decided to get a guest who's very well informed on this. So informed, he just did an excellent debate on Unbelievable on the topic. And that guest is Dr. Clay Jones. He holds a Doctor of Ministry degree from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he's an associate professor in the Master of Arts in Christian Projects program at Biola University. He, in the past, hosted Contend for Truth, a nationally syndicated call and talk radio program where he debated professors, radio talk show hosts, cultists, religious leaders, and representatives from animal rights, abortion rights, gay rights, and atheist organizations. He was the CEO of Simon Greenleaf University, which is now Trinity Law and Graduate School, and he was in the pastoral staff of two large churches. He's a contributing writer of a Christian research journal and specializes in issues related to why God allows evil. You need his blog at claysjones.net and find him on Facebook. So, Dr. Jones, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today, Nick. It's a pleasure to have you here today. But that intro I gave tells us a little bit about how you are as an academic, but how did you get to where you are today? What's the story? Well, I growing up, my father... I thought he was an atheist. He would say that he was an agnostic. He sure looked like an atheist, though. And my mother was an astrologer, and together we attended the United Methodist Church. And when I say my father was an atheist, I mean he had no time for God, really. uh, The reason we went to the United Methodist Church is he thought that some sort of religious education would be good for me. Uh, He was a hard-drinking, gambling, womanizing kind of guy. And my mother, when I say she was an astrologer, I don't mean she read out my horoscope in the newspaper, our horoscopes in the newspaper. I mean, she had charts and graphs and was always telling us things like your moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter's aligned with Mars and this is what it means. And she was into other occultic things and taught me quite a few things about the occult as a kid. But thankfully, when I was in junior high, my father became a Christian and the change was dramatic. Uh, had a tremendous effect on all of us. Uh, my mother then, not long after that, also became a Christian and gave up the occult. And, and But oh I God. think that this, this upbringing of having a father who thought well, all religious stuff was stupid 
and a mother who thought everything religious was good, regardless of what it was, immediately set me off in high school, interested in religious truth claims, and so I then majored in philosophy and got a master of divinity and so on, because of, and just thinking that I wanted to be aware of this, and so I was really interested in apologetics as a teenager, very, very interested in apologetics as a teenager. <clears throat> okay, and it seems like you've latched especially onto the problem of evil. So, uh, why the problem of evil? Well, I had in a lot of ways a, tr a hard, a difficult childhood. Uh, I had some health issues that I won't bother explaining now. I had rheumatic fever and it caused some heart problems and other things. Uh, and I was a terrible student and just, like I said, my family was kind of, my family was a mess until my dad became a Christian. So I was interested in, in evil, but I, I think I came to the problem of evil exactly backwards. It seems like most people come to it and it's kind of a, an intellectual pursuit. They go, well, there's a hard question out there. I need to answer it. I didn't actually come to it that way. I came to it uh, starting off in the early 80s. I became, started becoming aware of the glory that awaits us in heaven. And that was a huge, huge thing for me as I began to realize the wonder, the glory, the honor of what it means to be a Christian. And uh, as that went on, in fact, that became a major thing that I like to study and teach. After I love to teach on heaven. I love to teach on eternity, what it means presently for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be in temples of the Holy Spirit and that kind of thing. But then it occurred to me that I should start studying what it was like before I was a Christian. In other words, what what's it like for, what, what is the non-Christian really like? And so I started studying the depths of human evil, and those two combined, when I started studying the glory that awaits us in heaven, and then in time began to understand where we've come from, the mess that we were in, the, the depths of our human depravity. Frankly, and this will strike some people as odd, but the problem of evil just went away. Mm. In fact, let me just quote one quote, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous preacher of Westminster Chapel in London, put it, he says, most of our troubles are due to the fact that we're guilty of a double failure. We fail on the one hand to realize the depth of sin, and on the other hand, we fail to realize the greatness and height and the glory of our salvation. That's right, and it, I, I, I think that's the biggest problem for all Christians, regardless of their understanding of the problem of evil, of all Christians today, is we have a very limited understanding, frankly, of the depth of human sinfulness, and we have almost no understanding of the height and glory of our salvation. So I think D. Martin Lloyd-Jones hit it right on the head, exactly. Yeah, a few weeks ago I finished reading a book by one of your colleagues, Oris Cart Smith, he wrote a book, In Search of Moral Knowledge, and he cites an article from you about the Canaanite conquest, and he said oh, the yeah. reason that we don't take that serious, take as seriously as we do what we think for Canaanite conquest is such a problem because we don't realize how serious sin is. That's right. Mm. That's why that's exactly correct. We don't understand the seriousness of Canaanite sin. Mm. That they were, and, and we know this if you read the article. You, I, you can find the article on my blog, PlayJones.net, but it, it's under my resources section. It's entitled, We Don't Hate Sin, So We Don't Understand What Happened to the Canaanites. Mm -hmm. 
and I documented the cavity of Canaanite sin very carefully. In fact, they're not from the Bible, but from first century, or rather from, from Hittite resources, mm -hmm. uh, because we know what the Hittites actually believed. And when you really understand the level of Hittite, uh, which Hittites were uh, one of the groups of Canaanites, when you realize the depths of Canaanite sin, you begin then more closely to understand, I see why God decided that he'd had enough with these people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe it's just me, but there are some of us that, uh, it seems like for atheists, many times the problem of evil can just be this huge, huge burden. And there are a lot of us that really just, frankly, aren't too bothered by the problem of evil. I mean, we don't, it's not saying we like evil, like that, of course we don't, but we just see that it, it just doesn't really disturb us as much. Like we don't see the same logical contradiction, you know? Well, I think Christians, of course, they one of the things I, I, I love about Christianity is it explains everything. I mean, yep. and, and by that I mean there's a grid where mm -hmm. you can put everything that happens. Right. And because of that, once you become a Christian, you realize that evil is real, but, but God's going to fix it. And he's going to fix it forever. And so once mm -hmm. you come to the conclusion and the realization that God's going to fix evil forever, it's, it's not as troubling yeah. for most Christians as it is for the non-Christian. And I don't think, frankly, I don't think most atheists necessarily find it as troubling as they, they just simply want to use it as a weapon yeah. against Christians. Uh, I think about how uh, G.K. Chesterton once said that for the Christian, all the central questions are answered and all the peripheral and a lot of the peripheral questions can be unanswered, but for the non-believer, the peripheral questions can have an answer, but the central questions don't have one. Yeah. yeah. And when it comes to this, also I notice that most atheists, when they talk about the problem of evil, they don't seem to include themselves in the problem. Oh, no. A lot. Yeah. In fact, I'll take it a step further. Um, what goes on with with atheists, and we started talking just a little bit about human evil, but what goes on with atheists is think about this. Uh, if humans really aren't good, then that's, it starts to do away with a fair amount of the problem of evil. Why? Because if no one's good, then the question, why do bad things happen to good people, kind of goes away, right? Because yeah. there are no good people. But yeah. what the atheists have to do, actually, the skeptic has to do, is they have to engage, engage in, we do theodicy. Theodicy yeah. comes from theos for God and DK for justice, the justification of God for why he allows evil. But atheists, and, well, skeptics have to do anthropodicy, and that's the justification of man. Namely, the humans mm. are actually, at least some of them are good, and because of their goodness, they don't deserve what comes upon them. Mm -hmm. And so... We, of course, as Christians, say no. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That everybody really is a desperate sinner. But that's a, that's something that's not stated very often. And by that I mean, you really don't have this kind of conversation coming up when it comes to why God allows evil. But it needs to because, like I say, if humans really aren't good, if there are no good humans, which is exactly the testimony of Scripture, in fact. And we can talk about this more later. I think that you can back this up in many different ways. Mm -hmm. But if that's the case, then the question, why do bad things happen to good people, goes away. You know, there is one way that evil does trouble me. And like I said, it's one that I don't see brought up from the atheists. You know, it's had a, my wife and I went out to dinner last night with our church. And 
we actually, she actually ran into a couple where I was parking with a car that belonged to a church that we once attended, and due to some actions that took place, uh, we weren't very happy with the way that we were treated, and I was very surprised that she didn't feel any anger or anything, and I was saying, well, you know, it's probably a good thing you saw them instead of me, because I'd probably be still pretty upset, and said, well, maybe that's just where you need to learn to be more forgiving, and that's the kind of evil that I see that troubles me, it's all this stuff out there in the world and such, yeah, that's troublesome, but I see how it fits in, but the great evil that concerns me most is that I look inside my own self and say, what the heck is going on, why, why do I have this evil still in me at times? Yeah, that's right, and in fact, that's why the scripture says, if the judgment starts with the house of God, mm-hmm. how's it going to end with a sinner? Yeah. But uh, because, I mean, think about, see, you and I, we still struggle with sin. Yeah. Well, just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that you don't struggle with sin. Mm-hmm. My encouragement to every Christian is, though, the fact that you struggle with sin is evidence that you're a Christian. Mm-hmm. Because, frankly, when I was a non-Christian, I, although I became a Christian at 13, uh, before that, I was, man, I got all my friends started shoplifting. Uh, I, you know, I mean, I, if I could get my hands on porn as a 10, 11, 12-year-old, I did. Mm. But it didn't bother me. But the only thing that bothered me was the idea of getting caught. I wasn't, I wasn't yeah. concerned about those things themselves. I was just concerned about being caught. And, uh, but once I became a Christian, all of a sudden I found myself struggling mm. not to do things that I once did. But see, that was... That was God's work in me that, that the true Christian is no longer comfortable with sin and, and indeed does struggle with sin because they don't want to be a part of it anymore. Yeah, I'm thinking right now of a story that St. Augustine told so long ago about the worst evil that he thinks he did was stealing pears. And some people can be listening to and saying, what's stealing pears? What's the big deal about that? And he says, well, the thing that was so evil about that is that I didn't even want the pears. I didn't want to eat the pears. I didn't enjoy pears. We threw them away. We stole them just for the sake of stealing them. Yes, and I, frankly, in my shoplifting youth, sometimes it would be I'd steal something just for the challenge of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just, but this is what non-Christians, that you know, I mean, obviously non-Christians are raised with different kinds of senses of right and wrong. But like I say, for me, as I gave myself over to evil, I was only primarily concerned about being caught. Yeah. Well, before we get into the questions, one other thing I'd like to make is one that uh, Dennis Prager has made, and I've told this to several couples to tell them the importance of apologetics. That he said that so many couples have experienced divorce in marriage after a tragedy has happened, such as the death of a child, for instance. And he said. The couples that last and stay together tend to have one thing in common. They have an explanation for evil in their worldview already. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And by the way, just when it comes to, for instance, the death of a child, I don't find any correlation whatsoever between Hmm. people getting close to God or farther away from Him in that kind of tragedy. Some people get farther away from God. Some people get closer to Him. I've seen this again and again. And I just, in my own personal experience, I haven't done a study of this, I, again, I don't find any correlation. So I don't find, well, most people leave God or get farther away from them if they lose a child, or more, most people get closer to them. I don't see that at all. 
Some get closer to him. Some choose to get get mad at him and get farther away from him. I do not see a correlation. Mm. Hey, well, let's get really into the problem here, and let's start with, well, how about starting at the beginning? The thousands of years ago, there was this pepper in this garden, and this woman reaches out, and she eats a piece of fruit, and she gives it to her husband, and her husband eats a piece of fruit, and now the rest of us have to suffer because those two people made a mistake? What's going on with that? That's uh, a hugely important question, and, and it's when I start teaching on the subject uh, in my classes at Biola University, mm. uh, that's, that's where you need to begin. You say, well, why is there all the evil in our, our world? Well, I think you need to begin with the book of beginnings, right? Mm. The book of Genesis, and see what happens. Uh, and so you have, if you take the story seriously, and I think that's what we need to do, we just need to take the story seriously, mm -hmm. that there was a couple that God created that had free will, and that they cho chose then to rebel against God. They chose mm -hmm. to rebel against the creator of the universe. And we need to take their sinful choice very seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, but then the reason, and see, but the question still remains, okay, so I get it. God created a couple, gave them free will. Mm -hmm. They misused it, and then God punished them. But the question that you just asked is the important one. Well, why are we suffering for their sin? Well, if you just pay attention to Genesis 3, I think it explains a lot of it. Once they sinned, then God cursed the ground, says that he cursed the ground. And I ask people all the time, what natural evil could that not have enabled? In other words, God looks at planet Earth and he says, I curse you. That's a very active negative act against planet Earth. I curse you. What kinds of evil, natural evils, cancer, diseases of any kind, mold, uh, you know, for that matter, tsunamis and earthquakes and so on, what kind of natural evil could not have been uh, unleashed because God looked at planet Earth and said, I curse you. And then God did something else, and that is he kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden and when he kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, he removed them from a tree we don't think much about, the tree called the Tree of Life. He removed them from the rejuvenating power of the Tree of Life, and then we have, and we've been attending funerals ever since. Mm -hmm. uh, if he'd left them in the garden, they could have kept eating from the Tree of Life, and they'd still probably have very healthy bodies and still live. But, but because they rebelled, God cursed the ground, in my opinion, enabling... What, again, I ask, what, in, what kind of natural evil, sickness, uh, earthquakes, tsunamis, or whatever, couldn't have been enabled by him cursing the ground? And then he uh, removes them from the rejuvenating power of the tree of life, and here we are. Mm -hmm. And so, and of course you say, well, it just seems so unfair. Well, remember something. We're, we're Adam and Eve's kids. They're not just some strange a strange couple that just happened to live a long time ago, they're our first parents, or our original parents, and as our original parents, um, they couldn't reproduce something that was better than them. Mm -hmm. and by that I mean, once they fell and no longer had intimate relations, intimate communion with the creator of the universe, they're now beings in their, that are detached from the creator of the universe in a very real sense, who have tasted as a wonder the wonder, I say that sarcastically, of sin, once that happens, they could only reproduce themselves. And I think a lot of people need to realize that what happened with Adam and Eve is that they reproduced. And we, you know, everybody studies sex.
put it into practice, and a lot of people, other people are hoping to. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I mean, they just, this is sexual, think of the word reproduction. Adam and Eve reproduce, and they reproduce little Adam and Eve mm -hmm. that are, well, frankly, very, 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 very sinful little Adam and Eve that are out of relationship with God. And, and so that's, that's how we got into the mess that we're in. Now I don't, and I don't think God had an obligation. Once, once uh, a, a, a type of being, a race of beings, uh, and I'm still, and that's B-E-I-N-G-S. A woman just recently, where I was teaching at the end of my teaching, she raised her hand and said, "What do you have against beings?" I'm like, "Beings? No." She thought I meant B-E-A-N-S, and I was saying B-E-I-N-G-S. But anyway, uh, once. Once you have a race of beings that decides to rebel against God, does he have a moral obligation to make their lives easy? Mm -hmm. I don't see what the moral obligation is. Right. And so, and I ask people all the time, well, if God, if Adam and Eve rebelled against God, what, why should he be responsible? What's his, the moral responsibility to the race of rebels? Because that's what we all are. We're all mm -hmm. a race of rebels. What's his responsibility of making their lives easy? In fact, I think he does exactly the right thing by making their lives hard. And the reason I say that is, is because he wants us to learn, it's kind of like he wants us to learn the horror of rebellion against him. And so you have these beings who've decided to rebel against God, and he says, okay, I'm going to tell you what, I'm not going to make your lives easy. In fact, I'm going to give you a world where I, you know, he still is gracious and superintendent, or we would just, you know, fall apart immediately, but he allows us to suffer the consequences of the evil that we have brought upon ourselves and the evil that we see. Mm -hmm. So, uh, anyway, I, I think that, you know, and people will say, you know, this is just a terrible, terrible thing, though, that, that you know, God allows his couple to sin, and they, they then plunge their offspring into all this evil and destruction. So my reply to that is, well, there's a cosmic lesson here, and the cosmic lesson is hate sin. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something, frankly, non-Christians don't hate sin. Yeah. And, so they, and, and if you don't hate sin, obviously you're going to look at the entire salvation project. It's, it's, not, it's going to be a failure. Uh, you're not going to get it if you think that sin's not such a big deal, and that, in fact, is exactly where most skeptics are coming from. The, sin, the only sins that they think are a big deal are sins that are against them, yeah. personally. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, there's so much to respond to and ask about that point. One thing to start off with is how you said we should treat the story seriously, and I think this is something that skeptics need to do with the Christian faith, of course. What we're claiming here is that the Christianity is inherently contradictory. There's a contradiction within the system. And so we have to say, okay, let's take the story as it is, for the sake of argument at least, and see if it's contradictory. I don't, uh, just for the story, I don't think the story is contradictory. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't see what the contradiction would be. I mean, that's, you know, what sometimes, and, you know, I was on Unbelievable with it, debating an atheist uh, mm -hmm. a few weeks ago. And what the atheist has to argue, in fact, what he did argue, is God should have given us less freedom. Mm -hmm. But God, if God wants to give us, make create significantly free beings, and he has, then, then here we are. 
One of the points, by the way, that I cannot emphasize enough, and this is as logical as it gets, you cannot create a free being and not allow them to use it wrongly. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's as logical as it gets. You can't tell your daughter, sure, you can go out tonight with a, you know, with this boy, this young man that you, that you'd like to go out on a date with. You can go out with him, but, but then chain her to a heavy kitchen appliance. Yeah. That's not giving her freedom, even if you're telling her she's free. And yeah. God couldn't create free beings and then say, but now I'm not going to let you do anything wrong with it. Yeah. That's, just not, that's just not freedom. Mm. But atheists will often argue, as this fellow did on the radio, atheists will often argue, well, God should have then made us left free. Well, that's easy to say, but I think that's just silly. I don't think people really appreciate the level of freedom that they have. Yeah, what I was thinking along the lines of contradictory is that, like the skeptic would say, where Adam and Eve never even existed, and we know the Bible story is just a myth, such and I'm saying, no, for the sake of argument, you treat it as if it's a real story, and then say, see, if I treat this as a real story, is there a contradiction within the claim itself? I mean, the whole story could be a myth, it could be that Christianity is false, but what we're having to check see is, is Christianity internally contradictory? Well, let me address the claim that it's a myth first. Mm. When it comes specifically, as you know, to the why God allows evil or the so-called problem of evil, mm. whether or not there was a literal Adam and Eve is not a part, really, of that question. Right. Uh, that's a question, you know, I mean, that's a question that could be answered, and I think it could be answered well right. I, through scientific apologetics. Mm. That's a scientific apologetics question, and I think that you could even bring in the Kalam, really, is there a God? Mm. And then after you've brought in the Kalam, bring in, is there a reason to believe that God actually created a real couple, and, and does, what does science say about this? Mm. So the, the atheists can't just simply dismiss it as a myth. They have to, and you, you said it right when you said, well, okay, for the sake of argument, I'll bring it up. Well, that's really what they have to do, because remember, mm. when this Atheist, the skeptic comes to me, and the skeptic says, "I don't get it. Uh, why is God? Why does God allow evil?" Well, I'm going to give the Christian answer to why God allows evil. Mm -hmm. I'm not, in other words, I'm not trying to give the answer for just some theoretical God that might exist in the universe. Similarly, I'm not trying to give the answer for uh, a, a God that the skeptic might worship, because frankly. The kind of God that the skeptic would, would worship doesn't exist. There's no there's no defense for that. There's, it doesn't exist. But if you're going to say, okay, Clay, you're a Christian, can you explain why the God of the Bible allows the evil that he allows? I think we can do that very easily. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, let's also ask this question about how the curse is tied in with natural evil, and by that, of course, you mean things like earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, and such. What about those of us who think, for instance, that the Earth is billions of years old, and therefore there have been events of that sort going on long before the curse took place? Would that present a problem? That's an interesting, yeah, that's a very interesting question on, you know, of course, you have to deal with the whole age of the Earth thing, uh, first of all, uh, you've got, there's different kinds of responses to that. Mm. When it comes, for instance, like Hugh Roth, who I'm sure you're familiar with. He was on the show. That, 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 right. Then, that God has to allow uh, 
this just the way plate tectonics works uh, causes there's going to be certain uh, physical characteristics like earthquakes and of course it's going to result in tsunamis and stuff just because planet Earth is going to need to work that way. That's one possible response. Another possible response by William Dembski. Mm -hmm. uh, his answer to it is, well, to that kind of question is, well, God knew that humankind was going to sin, so he created a world, uh, you know, so he created a world with tectonic plate movements, stuff like that, that was going to be a problem. And he even created a world that would have animal death before Adam and Eve fell. And so you have different kinds of answers to that. Of course, the young earther, and I'm, by the way, I take an agnostic position to this, which I'm sure will offend everybody. <laughs> uh, I don't know how old the earth is. I think that, it, okay, I will say this. If you pushed me on the issue, I think the earth is probably old. Mm -hmm. But I don't think, but I don't, uh, I don't take a position, an official position on this, because I just don't think it's very important. But anyway, right. the bottom line on that is I think that this question can be answered in various ways. Hugh Roth and William Dembski and others are answering it in different ways, and I think that their answers succeed. Yeah. Uh, I was actually thinking of William Dembski's answer. That's in the book, The End of Christianity. And for anyone interested, Hugh Ross was my guest back in April. We had an interesting interview talking about not only apologetics, but what it's like for him being diagnosed with Asperger's also. But when it comes to the age of the earth, I'm actually more with you on this one. If you push me, I'll say, yeah, it's old, but I don't argue it because I'm not a scientist, and I could not begin to make a scientific case for or against. And so I say, yeah, it doesn't really matter to me, but at the same time, I think if we're going to be presenting this argument to a skeptic, we should come with the old earth position because that's the position the skeptic's going to be taking, no doubt. Well, it certainly is easier, but that's, like I say, my, for my, the purposes of what I do, I, I'm not a scientific apologist either. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I've studied all the issues, of course, in fact, I've studied them at length, but I'm not a scientific apologist, but I, to me, it's kind of a, it can be a red herring, uh, and it's a, really a debate for another, for another interview or another mm -hmm. lecture series, frankly, right. and that is a debate about, evolution and Darwinism and, and uh, intelligent design, all that important debate, but mm. not directly related to why God allows evil. Yeah, something we can say about natural evil also, and this is a point that I make when I talk about this kind of thing, is that uh, in many cases, we can know about these events happening and do something in advance. I mean, the Native Americans who lived here before us understand they weren't scientifically advanced, but they knew enough to not build on the shores of Florida. Today, we send our senior citizens there. Well, yeah, that that's a big issue to me, and, and this is... Hmm. People ask me all the time, I'll give you an example, people ask me all the time why God allowed Hurricane Katrina yep. to destroy much of New Orleans. And I always say, well, let's think about it for a minute. We built a city below sea level, mm -hmm. And we built it with walls that we knew for a fact. This is not a this is not a question that people in engineers mind. We right. built it with sea walls that we knew could not withstand a category uh, above category three hurricane. Mm -hmm. uh, and when we already knew that the category four and five hurricanes were a regular part of our experience, so we built a, a city below sea level with uh, safety mechanisms with sea walls that were incapable of withstanding 
a threat that was regular to our experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you know, Solomon said in, in Proverbs 19.3, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Mm -hmm. So you had all these people get their homes got wiped out because they were built on the right on the ocean in New Jersey recently. A hurricane wiped them out, and you know they got a lot of people going. Why does God allow this? I go. You know what? You need to respond to the fact that there's this is a, the, there's going to be hurricanes, and if you don't want your house to be wiped out, guess what? Don't build it on the beach. Yeah. But we don't we don't want to do that. But then when we do something foolish then we get mad and blame God for it when God, you know, we knew these threats were common in our experience, but we, we ignore them and go on and do what we want anyway. And then when we do what we want, we, we blame God. Mm -hmm. As Richard Swinburne at Oxford put it, and I, I think this is about as logical as it gets, natural laws must work in regular ways if our actions are going to mean anything at all. Mm -hmm. And so if God wants to teach us how to be responsible and how to do you know, to learn to be individuals who can respond and learn from their environment, we have to have natural laws working in regular ways. Yeah. National Geographic, even a year before Katrina hit, had an article about saying if a hurricane of such and such intensity comes through, the levees would not be able to withstand it. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, well, then you better make bigger levees. Yeah. Now, one thing we should also say about this is, I have a concern with many Christians, because as soon as something like Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Sandy strike, they mean say, God is judging us. God is judging us. Well, you know, I, I, I'm, I've always written a blog on disaster entitled, Disaster is Always a Call to Repent. Right. Now, here's the key. I think Christians make a huge mistake when they say this disaster happened because of these sins. I think that's a huge mistake. You had, when the Haiti earthquake occurred, you had certain famous leaders who I won't bother mentioning going, <laughs> this occurred because of these sins. Frankly, that's an outrage. And when you read Luke chapter 13, 1 through 5, which is basically Jesus' clearest teaching on the problem of evil, you know, because they come to him and they say, Jesus, you know, Pilate killed some people, you know, mixed some, the blood of some Galileans in with the sacrifices, and then Jesus brings up his own example, and he says, well, he says, well, what about the power of Siloam that fell on those men and killed them? But here's the key, he says, were they worse sinners because that happened to them? And he says, no, they weren't worse sinners, they were just sinners. He says, unless you repent, you will all, too, likewise perish. And so, uh, it's not that the people who built, built, their, built their beach uh, in New, or built their home on the beach in New Jersey and were wiped out with by Hurricane Sandy or by the people who built, well, a city below sea level. It's not that they're worse sinners that this happened. They're just sinners. Mm -hmm. But see, what this is, is ultimately it's a call for repentance. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned the earthquake in Haiti, because as you were on Unbelievable doing debate on Palm Aviva, I was also on Unbelievable about four and a half years ago after that earthquake occurred. I was called in to debate for Palm Aviva. They wanted someone who lives with disability to come and give a different perspective. And once I did say, yeah, human sin is responsible for the great suffering of this earthquake, and here's why, because there were 
There are always wicked governments in charge that keep their people in poverty, and when they do that, the buildings can't withstand an earthquake of that intensity, and so an earthquake that would not have been as strong a deal in many other places is absolutely devastating to them because people are wicked. Well, right. Yeah. But see, like I think mm. in my title of my blog, but disaster is always called a repentance. Yeah. In other words, even though it's people that suffer from the disasters are worse sinners, mm-hmm. what disaster does is it calls us to examine our ultimate destination, and that is the fact that we're all going to die. Mm-hmm. And once you realize that we're all going to die, uh, that causes you, just the realization, hey, we're all going to die, causes you to go, you know, I ought to make sure that my life's right with God. And disaster, what it mostly does is it reminds us of all of our ultimate destination. And it reminds us of the fact that we're insecure in this world and that we could die at any time. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's important news uh, for mm-hmm. all humans to understand that this is, that you can't just expect to live to a ripe old age. In fact, I always tell the joke of, you know, when I die, I want to die like my grandfather died, yeah. fully and in his sleep. Not screaming like the passengers in his car. We're all going to die. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, in fact, only one thing is going to prevent everyone that's not only everyone that's listening to this, that listens to this podcast, but every single person alive is the only thing that's going to prevent everyone in the world from from dying. uh, Everyone in the world is going to die from murder, accident, or disease. And the only thing that's going to prevent us from watching everyone we know, the only thing that's going to prevent us from watching every single person we know die from murder, accident, or disease will be our own death from murder, accident, or disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I mean, the the world is a very serious place. Mm -hmm. And so, the disasters like this just point out the fact that we can't expect to live to a ripe old age. We think what what the Lord really said when he talked to Adam and Eve, you know, when he said, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We think he added, in your sleep, at a ripe old age of natural causes. Yeah. He didn't say that. He just said, you will die. Hmm. And we've been attending funerals ever since. Yeah, I'd say the only other thing also could prevent that is if Christ chooses to return before then and ends everything right then, and yeah, but we don't have any control over that one either. Right. Hmm. We don't, we don't, well, we certainly have no control over uh, I mean, we have some control over in our, our own death and that we cannot do stupid things. Right. But we are all going to die. And I'm thinking about how when you were on the show, you were told about a boy who was this musical genius, and he died in his 20s from cancer. And you asked, what's the meaning of this? Why did he have to die at such a young age? And Pommy was listening to this atheist complain about him, thinking, well... In your view, what difference does it make? Because his life is, anyway, a meaningless accident, and this whole universe is going to die in a heat death, and no one will know the difference anyway. So, what 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 hope does your view give him anyway, too? Yeah, I, I don't. You know, I, I think the atheists, when they say, uh, well, as Greg Kokel put it uh, once, he says, a tsunami sweeps a lot of people out to sea. What's wrong with that? The crabs are having a feast. Mm-hmm. The crabs are eating well. Why should we be bothered that a whole bunch of people are swept out to sea? Mm-hmm. The key is, again, when it comes to the young guy, the young pianist that, that uh, Richard Norman brought up, is, you know, I just, 
as I said to him, well, if that young pianist comes to Jesus, he's going to live forever. But mm -hmm. frankly, and I think this is something that, that, that you're pointing out that's very true, if there is no God, if Christianity really isn't true, if it isn't true, if there is no God, if there is no ultimate salvation, why should we think that dying at 23 is that big a deal compared to dying at 70? Why, I mean, you know, life is tough, and, and why should you have a certain right to live longer? Mm. But thankfully, Christianity comes along, Jesus comes along and says, you know, the most famous verse in the Bible, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, and whosoever believes in him shall not perish. So what? Have eternal life. Mm. And so that's the proclamation we have. If, if you don't like the shortness of this life, and indeed it is very short, well, guess what? You can come to Jesus and you can live forever and ever and ever and ever. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to reject Jesus, it really doesn't matter whether you live to 23 or 33 or 63 or 83, because you're ultimately going to end up with your loss, your life lost forever. Yeah, and I've been in an email debate actually with an atheist going back and forth, <laughs> and when we talk about natural evil, I said. Natural evil is actually a great way for people, for God to get people's attention. And I said, yeah, we might learn some things through pleasure, but pleasure really isn't a great teacher. But as C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone. It gets us all to just wake up and say, okay, what's going on here? Well, I think that's exactly right. Uh, there's something valuable in suffering, and, and it's what I mentioned about you know, Luke 13, and that is, wow, I could die, mm -hmm. and I could die at any minute. Yep. One of the things, by the way, when people bring up to me, they'll say, well, why did God, you know, this is the kind of question I get quite a bit. Why did God let little Johnny die? He was hit by a car when he was six. He skateboarded out in the street, mm -hmm. and then he was hit by a car and killed. Why did God let that happen? Or they'll say, why did God let Susie uh, died seven years old, she died of cancer, why did God let that happen? Mm -hmm. And I think that what you need to do whenever you run into that is begin to say something like this. And that is, well, it's not just Johnny and Susie, right? I mean, it's not just one person. You don't think it's okay that other children are being hit by cars or getting cancer, right? And they'll say, you know, I mean, I, I've asked this question. Of course, they're going to go, well, right. Uh, other children shouldn't be hit by cars or die of cancer. And I'll say, so really, but you don't think any child should be hit by a car, die of cancer, right? And they'll pause and go, yeah. And they're beginning, you can tell, beginning to get a little nervous, I think, because they see where this is going. And so, but it's not just being hit by a car or dying of cancer, right? You don't think the children should be raped or are murdered either, do you? No. But you don't think they should die of other diseases either, do you? No. And I'll just keep pushing this point until finally I'll say, okay, so you really don't think children should would be allowed to suffer, severely suffer, or die, right? And so, in other words, then I'll finally say, so to what age do you think children should be indestructible? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because, because that's really, if you push it, because what they do is they'll give one example of one person who suffered badly or died early, and died early, just say, but it's not, I mean, you certainly don't think that's true for everybody else, right? And of course they don't. And so, once you begin to push that, so really you're actually going to argue that children should be indestructible to a certain age. And I've actually then had people go, well, that's why children should be indestructible until a certain age. That's crazy talk. Mm -hmm. I mean, that so changes the very nature of the universe 
uh, the nature of mortality, the nature of parenting, then life would be unrecognizable. Now, let, let me give you a couple things about this. For instance, people say to me something like this. You know, I mean, it, well, let me put it this way. Uh, I'm a, first, I oppose, I just want to officially go on record saying I oppose all forms of child abuse. There, there's my disclaimer. Yeah. But think about it. If you had an indestructible three-year-old, an oh, indestructible three-year-old, uh, you, you could throw that child across the room, and he's going to come back at you. Mm. Right? That child's going to be coming back at you because guess what? You're not indestructible, but that three-year-old is indestructible. Could you imagine being around indestructible two- and three-year-olds, or for that matter, indestructible five-year-olds or seven-year-olds? I mean, they would rule. Why? Because they're indestructible and you're not. What kind of a world would that be? Also, mm. if you had indestructible children, how would you, how would parenting look, what would it look like? Because mm. let's say there were one person said, well, I think children should be indestructible until 12. Well, how, how do you parent kids that are indestructible? You don't even need to tell them, don't play and look both ways when you cross the street. Because, in fact, you could go tell them, why don't you go play marbles in the freeway because you'll just bounce around a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, because if they're indestructible, parenting is not really very necessary. Of course, you'd have to, I guess, say, well, you better learn this because one day you're going to be 13 and then you're going to be very destructible, which brings up other issues. Are we really going to be happy with our 13-year-olds all of a sudden getting cancer and dying from cars? But isn't there something valuable that your little children are learning what the word hot means because they may get burned? Yeah. Or, you know, they're learning various things about life. And to have them be indestructible is just—it's—it's it's a ridiculous kind of world, really. It's not a world that could work. Yeah, I, I'm really thinking this would be the great theme of a science fiction story to illustrate this kind of absurdity. And I'm always thinking, how are you going to give these kids their vaccinations, for instance, when they get older later on, and all of a sudden they can be hit with all these diseases? Because they, you can't give an indestructible kid a shot. That's right. Not only that, but in fact, you mentioned that there'd be science fiction. There actually has been a really, really good science fiction done about an indestructible child. And it's a Twilight Zone uh, that I actually show part of it to my classes when I teach uh, my our, the, the two-unit class I teach on Why God Allows Evil. There's actually quite a show uh, on this, and it's called It's a Wonderful Life. Or, uh, yes, it's, maybe it's a good life. No, it's a good life. But anyway, it features a young boy, I think, named Anthony, and I think Anthony was seven years old. But Anthony was not only indestructible, Anthony was omnipotent. Another, he could read people's minds, and everybody was terribly afraid of him mm -hmm. because he was basically indestructible, and they are not. Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody was terribly afraid of him. And I, 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 the idea that you could have indestructible children is just, just ridiculous on the face of it. Uh, and I and you wouldn't learn to be a good parent. You parenting wouldn't even mean anything like it means today at all. Mm -hmm. And the in fact, chances are you wouldn't even want to be a parent. That's right. There's the death of a human race right there. Yeah. Well, I, well, yeah. I mean, who'd want to have it? I mean, could you imagine an indestructible twelve-year-old? They will rule. Mm -hmm. I mean. Of course, once they're 13, you could get a back, I guess, and I'm saying that kiddingly. But, yeah. but uh, anyway, it's a tough world. It would be a tough, unwieldy un, un, uh, world. Well, 
this gets us into another topic we can discuss with what actually is a human and what difference does it make? I mean, why should we talk about the goodness of the human instead of, say, the goodness of the cat, dog, chimpanzee, or anything else? The goodness of a human? I'm sorry, I kind of lost you just yeah. a little bit there. Yeah, why should we talk about, think, the main evil is what happens to humans instead of treating cats and dogs and other creatures on the exact same level. What makes humans so special? Well, uh, humans, of course, were created in the image of God, and uh, dogs and cats and other animals were not. Now, again, the skeptics might say, well, I don't believe that. That's not my problem. Mm -hmm. If you're asking me to explain why God allows evil as a Christian, I'm going to give you the Bible's answer. Mm -hmm. If you can show that my answer is incoherent in, in, with right. itself, that well, then you have quite you've really accomplished something. But the fact that the skeptic doesn't like my answer is irrelevant. It has absolutely nothing to do with the case mm -hmm. uh, because I'm not again I'm not trying to present a god that the skeptic will like. Right. <clears throat> in essence, you're not even at this point trying to prove Christianity. You're, tr you're treating Christianity as it is and saying, I'm dealing with a defeat, or if I defuse this defeat, or it doesn't prove Christianity is true, but it shows that it's not false on this account. That's right. That's yeah. exactly correct. I'm not... When we, when we explain why God allows evil, yeah. it's not an attempt to say that Christianity is true. That's not what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. We're just simply trying to say, God has very good reasons for allowing the evil that he allows. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean Christianity is true. It just means that right. Christianity is coherent. Right. And I think that I think the great news of it is, is once you understand it's coherent, I think, as I said, I think it explains the great questions of the universe. Mm -hmm. Well, what then really is a human being? When we say a human being has the image of God. We need some content to that. What is it about human nature that's so important to the problem of evil? Well, you know, I think the thing is, when it comes to human nature, uh, we need to understand the depth of human sinfulness. That's the key. Uh, because humans are not good, that they really are very, very, very sinful. Mm -hmm. And when I teach on this, I spend a lot of time developing this, this concept, because we really have to get this... Uh, in, if we don't, if we don't understand the depth of humankind, then we're always going to be thinking God isn't very nice, God isn't very good. So we really need to go farther than that and uh, and really make sure we understand the depth of human sinfulness uh, to comprehend human depravity. Now, uh, one of the things in talking about the depth of human sinfulness is when we talk about this, sometimes people say, "Well, that sounds like Calvinism to me," and I'm not a Calvinist. But on that, they're, they're mistaken, because, frankly, uh, on this one point that humans are desperately depraved, Arminius agrees with that. Yep. You could even say that Arminius was, uh, was a one-point Calvinist. <laughs> they may have disagreed on a lot of other stuff, but they certainly agreed that, that the humans are really depraved, and except from the work mm -hmm. of the Holy Spirit, they're just evil. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> we have to get that clear. And so when I spend a lot of time talking about this, to groups, I start talking about the various kinds of evil that we find in the that we find in the Bible, uh, or excuse me, that we find in humankind. For instance, if we talk about Germany 
We know that six million Jews were killed. We forget sometimes that six million people of Slavic descent, about six million were also murdered. We know about people being forced into gas chambers, about them being stripped naked and forced into ditches where they were shot. Uh, we know, you know, about all this kind of stuff going on that's horrendous. Uh, but what, and one of the things, by the way, 10,005, when I first read this about 20 years ago, the, the number was 10,005 camps have been, have been identified positively. And when I heard that, I thought that's impossible. I, I thought this, this isn't even remotely possible, 10,005 camps. Well, actually, the number, it turns out now, according to the uh, United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, they think there's over 40,000 camps that have been positively identified, brothels, camps, you know, places where people would work, and so on. Over 40,000 have been identified. What I didn't understand, for instance, is that Dachau had 174 satellite camps, mm. and Auschwitz had 50 satellite camps, and so on. You have all these camps underneath all these much bigger camps that we're familiar with the names of. But see, so you've got a tremendous amount of Germans participating in the death of millions of people. And by the way, we know that Hitler started calling for the death of the Jews, the murder of the Jews, no later than August 13, 1920. Mm -hmm. uh, when you go to the Soviet Union, about 20 million people were murdered uh, by the Soviet Union from 1917 to 1989. Mm -hmm. And those are conservative numbers, by the way, 20 million. Uh, we know that in China, millions and millions were murdered in China. We know that, that the Japanese raped and murdered and raped and tortured about 300,000 people in Nanking, China. Uh, and I could go on and on and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. But what I've learned is, is that it isn't just, it isn't just the statistics that commit genocide. What you find is that average people commit genocide. This is what average people do. Uh, and once you begin to realize that this is what average people do, you begin to say, wow, humans really aren't very good. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about the United States just for a minute. From 1973 to present day, oh, yes. over 55 million babies have been, mm -hmm. have been uh, suctioned, um, scraped, or scalded to death. Over 55 million babies. What's, what's wrong with our society that would suction, scrape, and scald to death 55 million babies? There's something really wrong there. Mm -hmm. But this tells you that humans, humans do really evil things and that they're not good. Yeah, my wife recently wrote something on this, and she said something in it that I've said before several times, and I was really pleased to see what she said, is that you know, if we compare ourselves to the Canaanite culture and such, the Canaanite culture, they participate in child sacrifice, and that was wicked and evil, yeah, but they at least did it to ensure the bounty of a harvest for everyone else. We do it in order to sacrifice at the altar of convenience instead. We're even worse. Uh, I think that's right. When I first read about uh, the Canaanites and the murdering children, <clears throat> I thought, this is who would, you know, they would offer their kids to Molech, and Molech was a bullheaded idol with a human-like body, mm -hmm. and in his belly you stoked a fire, and in his outstretched arms you placed a baby. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought, who would do that? But it's just as you said, they're praying for crop success or to win a battle, mm -hmm. uh, and they're offering their children for that. We're offering our children for, I wanted a boy, 
or I want to, you know, I'm not ready yet, or, you know, I want to advance my career. And, and it is the majority of Americans that keeps abortion legal in the United States. And oh, a woman, by the way, came up to me one day and she says, <clears throat> she says, Clay, I like your other examples about human evil, about the Germans and the Chinese and the Japanese and stuff. But she says, don't use abortion because it weakens your point because a lot of people don't think abortion is wrong. And I thought, well, that's, that is my point. Mm-hmm. Our killing we don't think is wrong, right? We're upset about other people's killing. Right. We're not upset about our killing. We justify our killing as, well, it's just a clump of tissue unless I turn out to want it. If I want it, then it's, voila, it's a baby. If I don't want it, it's just a clump of tissue. Well, you know what? There's something terribly sinful about humans and in, in, in the fact that they can do that. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, by the way, every single Holocaust survivor and every Holocaust victim I've ever read, every single one of them, and every Holocaust, I shouldn't say Holocaust, let me change it. Holocaust is just one one example of genocide. Every genocide victim I've ever read about, every single one of them, and every genocide researcher I've ever read comes to the conclusion that it's the average member of a population that commits genocide. Mm Mm-hmm. That tells us there's something terribly wrong with humankind. Mm-hmm. Let me just quote two of them for you, because I think it really tells us a lot. Sociologist Harold, Harold Welzer put it this way. We're left then with the most discomforting of all realities, ordinary normal people committing acts of extraordinary evil. This reality is difficult to admit, to understand, to absorb. As we look at the perpetrators of genocide and mass killings, we no longer need to ask ourselves who these people are. We know who they are. They are you and I. Think about, I mean, there's something very significant about, he says, you know, he looks at this and he goes, uh, human, normal humans like us commit genocide. I, and by the way, if anybody wants to read a good book on this, I really encourage them to read a book entitled Ordinary Men, uh, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland. It's written by Christopher Browning, and listen to Christopher Browning's conclusion. He says, I could have been the killer or the evader. Both were human. Notice, he says, I could have been either one because this is just what humans do. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I could go on and on. I won't, of course, but I could go on and on with this because it makes the point. There's something wrong with humankind because humankind does genocide very easily. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, we are going to take a quick break where I have a few commercials and such. I'm Nick Peters. This is the Deeper Waters Podcast, and we'll be back after this break. It's here, the official Rock Radio mobile app. Listen to your favorite rock radio programs on your iPhone, iPad, iPod, Kindle Fire, Android smartphones, and tablets. The best thing is, it's absolutely free. Download it now from the iTunes or Google Play App Store, or get a link at our website, cyiworldwide.com. Rock Radio, Christian radio that doesn't suck. Check out cyiworldwide.com, home of Rock Radio. Free music downloads, advice, prayer, and support. cyiworldwide.com. Do you rock? Hey, this is Minister Grok. Thanks for listening. Although Grok Radio is free, there are costs to upkeep the website, podcast, and purchase Bibles and materials for street ministry. 
And while we are happy to pay this ourselves out of pocket, we will gladly accept any gifts if you feel led to support the shows and our street ministry. You can send a gift or love offering through our website at cyiworldwide.com. Thanks for your support, and God bless. Check out cyiworldwide.com. CYIWorldwide.com, home of Grok Radio. Free music downloads, advice, prayer, and support. CYIWorldwide.com. Do you Grok? Can't get enough of your favorite Grok Radio shows? Well, now you can download episodes for free. Check out the Grok Radio program archive at CYIWorldwide.com. And we're back to our show. Thanks for listening. Now, right here in the studio, I've got Dr. Clay Jones with me. But if you're listening next week, my guest is going to be Dr. David Capes from HBU, Houston Baptist University. And he's been part of a team that's come out with a translation of a Bible called The Voice. So we'll be talking about that, Bible translations and Questions of that sort. So you won't want to miss that one. Next week, Dr. David Cates talking about the voice. But for now, we've got the voice of Dr. Clay Jones here talking about the problem of evil. Now, you were talking about how sinful our humanity is. And there is a kind of paradox going on here that in one sense, human beings are good in their being, because we're created by God, we bear His image, we're made to dwell with Him forever and such. It's our behavior, though, that really gets us down. Right. I, I've studied this a lot, which obviously, since I teach on this, it shouldn't be a surprise, but it is true that the image of God is not totally distinct from the fall. However, I would not say that humans are morally good. I don't right. think that humans possess, uh, outside of the work of Christ in their life, I don't think humans possess any moral goodness at all. Uh, I think that, you know, I mean, that's why they do the Holocaust so easily. Is In fact, as Auschwitz survivor Ellie was put it deep down, man is not only an executioner, not only a victim, not only a spectator, he's all three at once. Mm-hmm. So when you begin to look at this, uh, and you come to like, for instance, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, starting with verse 10, where Paul says, there is no one who does good, no, not even one. He says, their throats are open graves, their mouths are full of cursing, their feet are swift to shed blood. There is no one who does good, not even one. Mm-hmm. When Jesus was talking to the Jews, and I don't mean to the Pharisees, just the regular Jews, he says, if you being evil know how to good, give good gifts to your children, he says, won't your heavenly Father give you as you ask of him? But notice he just straight out says, if you being evil, mm-hmm. they came to Jesus and they said, uh, what, a guy came to Jesus and said, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. Jesus wasn't making small talk there. He really meant no one is good but God alone. Right. And when you really take serious, there is no one who does good, not even one. Wow, uh, that's really serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are no good people. By the way, here's the counterexample I get from skeptics. The biggest counterexample I get is, okay, but Gandhi wasn't a Christian. Wasn't Gandhi good? And the answer to that is very simple. 
No, absolutely not. Do not confuse doing a good act with being a good person. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, if you want evidence of this, all you have to do is Google Gandhi's nieces. And you will very quickly find a picture of Gandhi with his arms around two of his nieces. Now, he happened to get into bed every night naked with his, with his nieces. Not just his nieces, but lots of other women. That Gandhi was getting into bed with other men's wives naked. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, you know, it, doing, and here's the point I keep trying to make. Doing a good act does not make you a good person. Sure, it is true that Gandhi did some good acts. That doesn't make you a good person. Mm -hmm. Helping an old, an old lady across the street is a wonderful thing to do, and it is a good act. But doing it does not make you a good person. You're not a good person because you did such a thing. Yeah. Um, and I think, so anyway, I think it's very important. What, what we need to see is that, is that sinfulness, that evil is a matter of the heart. Mm -hmm. That's why Jesus said, he who looks at a woman lustfully is committed with her in his heart. And John says, he leaves his brother is a murderer. And the question I ask, for instance, on the murder question is, if you hate somebody's guts, why don't you murder them? Well, it isn't out of moral goodness, because you, it isn't because you care for the person, because we've already established that you hate the person's guts. Mm. So if you hate their guts, why don't you murder them? So isn't it self-interest? Namely, you don't want to lose, you don't want to end up in the prison population, or you don't even want to take the chance of being executed yourself. You don't want to lose your job, your reputation, your family. <clears throat> Excuse me. But notice that those things are all about self-interest. And what, if you really start looking at human goodness very closely, you'll find that it really comes down to cost-benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. If I start, if I treat, if I don't treat people well, what's it going to cost me? If I end up committing adultery, what's it going to cost me? I could lose my wife or husband. I could get a disease. We could end up with a baby. We don't. You know, that would be hard to explain and so on. But see, that again is a cost-benefit analysis. That's why Jesus says that you need to look at the heart. Uh, and so once you start doing that and you find that no one is good, indeed, as the scripture says, there is no one who does good, no, not one, it begins to radically change the problem of evil. Because bad things aren't happening to good people. There are no good people. One thing I've found, and as <clears throat> listeners of the show know, that in the time between our last show and this one, my wife and I actually celebrated our fourth wedding anniversary together. And what I've found being a married man now is that if you ever want to get an example of how you have a problem of evil in your own self, just get married, and you'll find it will come out on its own very, very easily. <laughs> and that's one lady... I worked one time and said, what's the secret to uh, learning forgiveness? And I said, get married. You're going to spend most of your time either give, giving married, giving forgiveness or receiving it. And if you're like me, you'll spend most of the time receiving forgiveness. But Allie and I have talked about it. I said, can you imagine what our relationship is going to be like together someday when we live together and we don't have sinful natures? Well, absolutely. And, and surely you do have a a lot of chance to find out about the depth of human evil in, in marriage. But then the next step is have children. Because one of the things about children, and, and so many parents have echoed this sentiment, they say, you know, I didn't have to teach my children to be selfish or rebellious. Yep. They already knew that for some reason. Mm -hmm. See, that's the case. Uh, so 
So marriage is the first step to learning the, the depth of human sinfulness. The next step is have kids. <laughs> well, this is getting us into another part of a problem that, say, well, geez, if a problem is all these people doing things, well, how about just getting rid of that darn free will thing? Because it seems to create so many problems. Wouldn't the world just be better off if we were incapable of doing evil? Well, that's exactly, you know, that's where the skeptic often goes, mm -hmm. is they'll actually try to start arguing, well, it would be better off if humans just simply didn't have free will at all. That's, but that's really crazy talk. Uh, in fact, listen to uh, T.H. Huxley, who was a Darwinist, big friend of Darwin. Darwin's bulldog. He died in 1895. Mm -hmm. Listen to what he said. He said, I protest that if some great power would agree to make me always to think what is true and do what is right on condition of being turned into a sort of clock, I should instantly close the offer. I don't believe that for a minute. I mean, I don't think anybody really honestly in their heart of hearts says, you know what, uh, if you could make me always do the right thing, I'd be glad to be turned into a robot. I'd be glad to be turned into some sort of machine. That's just bravado. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's just trying to get out of the problem. Um, <clears throat> nobody, people value free will. And I've spent a lot of time ta uh, talking and writing about this. In fact, uh, uh, I've written an article, it hasn't come out online yet, it, one of these days it will, but I've written an article entitled Science Fiction, Free Will and the Problem of Evil. And in that article, I go through the fact that our, a lot of our favorite science fiction is actually about free will. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, the invasion of the body snatchers, the first one was made in 1956, which I highly recommend, by the way. Uh, it's in the. It's been remade three times since then. The last time by Nicole with Nicole Kidman in a version that was just simply called Invasion. But in the invasion of the body snatchers, aliens are taking away humans' free will. And so, uh, and and this is as uh, this pod people taking away the free will. That's what they call them as pod people. This, this pod person tells this young terrified hostage. Love, desire, ambition, faith, without them, life's so easy. But the heroines protest, I don't want to live in a world without love or grief or beauty. In other words, we see that in uh, so many movies. We see that in the, term, in, in the, in the Matrix movies, yeah. where Neo is told, you know, take this pill and you can go back to leave, living your blissful existence. Take the other pill and guess what? You're going to have to live in the real world and you're not going to like it. Uh, but Neil says, I need to be in control of myself. I don't want to be in that kind of a world. Uh, mm -hmm. 2001 is Space Odyssey. A computer is trying to take takes over against human free will. The Terminator movie, same thing. Uh, where a machine decides, gets free will, the machine gets free will, and then tries to take away other people's free will. Mm -hmm. And I could go on and on and on with movie after movie after yeah. movie. The bottom line is, is, I don't know of any free will movie ever that's on that subject that concludes at the end that regardless of how much suffering humans endure that it would be that they're better that they're not better off having free will the movie always concludes that humans are better off having free will even if it results in tremendous suffering and I think that's exactly correct human uh, free will is extremely valuable and those who say that it's not valuable frankly I don't think they're being honest 
But as you, in the unbelievable podcast, as I pointed out, Richard Norman argued basically that God should give us less free will. Mm-hmm. Well, I think for me, that's just a personal preference because frankly, I'm thrilled that God gave us the amount of free will that he gave us. Mm-hmm. I enjoy it, and I'm glad we have it, even though it's resulted in the suffering. But guess what? God's going to fix the suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, one uh, other aspect I was thinking of that fits in with this would be kind of a sort of Stepford Wives scenario. Imagine having telling a husband says, "You know what? I can get you a wife. She'll give you all the sex you want. She'll take care of a house where you want. She'll raise the kids where you want. She'll watch sports or do whatever you want with you." Thing is, though, she only do it because she's a robot and she's programmed to do all of that. And That's right. And I don't. I. The Stepford Wives is another example of a movie on free will. Yeah. Uh, and, but in this case, people don't want, don't like other people's free will. But I, I don't think anybody really believes that that you'd mm. rather have a robot spouse. Yeah. Because everybody really knows that a robot spouse is just three steps above inflatable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, do we really want a robot because you're wonderful? I mean, really. Mm-hmm. I love you. God could have created the world with robots. Would mm-hmm. you really want to be in a world that's just full of robots? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that makes it so important also is because this is, in fact, talking about how people relate to us specifically. Say, and my husband say, no, if my wife does those kinds of things, I want her to do those things because she really loves me and she's genuine in them. I don't want just a machine. I didn't marry a machine. And it's like, well, yeah. And God doesn't want just a machine either. That's right. Mm-hmm. In fact, another movie, kind of a silly movie, but Love Potion Number Nine with Sandra Bullock. But she realizes she gets this love potion, so she realizes that that if she gets it on the guy that she really wants to love her, that if she does, he will love her forever, but it won't be free. And so she realizes, I don't want to do that because I want him to freely love me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you find this, this again and again. By the way, I really recommend another movie, uh, Ruby Sparks. Uh, it's an HBO movie. Uh, I, for a great movie about a, a guy and a gal and about free will. I'm not going to reveal the plot because I think it's worth seeing. But the bottom line, again, is these movies reveal to us something that I think is true, that, that free will is valuable. Uh, see, if Christianity is true, then God really did create beings with free will, and it would make sense to us that our, to our very nature that would our very nature would resonate with creation's ultimate meta narrative that God created humans with free will that they used it to rebel against them. Uh, but He, unlike the, all the sci-fi movies, using the sci-fi movies, the rest of the movie, like with the Terminator and the Matrix, is spent killing. You know, killing the creator, namely killing or killing the robot, I should say. Uh, the rest of the movie is about that, but God figures a way of creating humans, allowing them to rebel against Him. Then He sends His Son Jesus to make a way for these rebellious free will beings to have relationship with Him again. It's really an amazing story, but so many movies are actually picking up on the, the greatest meta narrative of all, and I think it's phenomenal. Right, someone Chris said, well, how is it felt about God? can hold us accountable, since in many cases he hasn't clearly revealed his law to us. Let's talk about the Canaanites, for instance. The Canaanites didn't have a Bible, they didn't have a revelation of Jesus, so 
How were they to know they were doing something wrong? Well, of course, in Romans 1 we learn that that God has made it plain to him that he exists, Mm -hmm. and he's given us all a conscience. And frankly, uh, there was revelation, and there there was revelation in Old Testament times, and and, uh, even when it came to killing the Canaanites, remember, uh, Rahab said, Mm -hmm. who was a prostitute herself, she says, you know what? Uh, we heard what you did to Egypt, and we knew that God was mad, and that you were coming to get us, and that nothing was going to stand against him. Notice the knowledge there. Mm-hmm. They could they could choose to repent. Rahab did repent, and was then not only was she allowed to enter into Israel as a repentant Canaanite, but she actually ended up in Jesus' family line. Yeah, uh, I mean, which is an amazing thing. But but. When it comes to evidence, because see, that's the atheist's big comment, right? The atheist's yeah. big complaint is that there's not enough evidence. You don't have enough evidence that Christianity is true or that there really is a God. And the answer to that is very simply that that is false. Mm-hmm. It's just simply not true. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, listen to Jesus' words. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And what Jesus goes on to point out is, he says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. In other words, Jesus says that it's a sign of our wickedness and adulterousness that we want more evidence, that that's what wicked and adulterous people do. They want more evidence. Jesus says, but we're not going to give them more evidence except for one sign, and that'll be his resurrection. And that's mm-hmm. the sign that's given to all humans, so that they could come to Jesus. Now, what, what if, how this works out is, God gives enough evidence so that those who would want to repent will have their beliefs justified, mm-hmm. but not so much evidence that those who don't want to repent will, will be compelled to feign loyalty, because God is not interested in feigning loyalty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I often make a point that you know, some of them will say, well, why doesn't God just appear to everyone and end the question? Right then, then my point are, first off, if you don't love God, you're going to just rebel against him anyway. So who cares? And then second off, what if God wants people who want to want him and don't just want him to answer their questions? They want to say, hey, if he's real, I really want to find him. Right. Let me, let me, here's a couple of examples I use. God, what they're arguing is God should have created the universe differently. And mm-hmm. here's the kind of thing that I like to bring up. First of all, God could have created the world such that uh, there's a giant flaming sword hanging over the universe. And what I mean is, we could God could have created the world such that we could all look up and kind of even look through our ceilings, and we could go, whoa, there's a giant flaming sword. Uh, and if anybody disobeyed God, that giant flaming sword immediately cut them in half. God could have created a world like that, where there was a giant flaming sword hanging over everybody's heads. But what kind of a world would that be? How many worshipers would you actually have in a world where there was a giant flaming sword? Uh, my answer to that is, I don't think you'd have any of them, any actual worshipers. But how many Christians would there be in such a world? The answer to that is very simple. All of them. Yeah. Who wouldn't be a Christian in a world where they, as soon as you sin, God immediately cuts you to, to pieces? Mm-hmm. Everybody would be feigning, but see what they'd be doing 
would make Christianity like a drug, where as soon as you became a Christian, you just felt good. Mm-hmm. Whoa, I feel good. Well, you know what? Jeez, How many dude. people would become Christians? I think most of them would. Mm-hmm. But would that make anybody a worshiper? Would it really cause anybody to really come to a right relationship with Jesus? I'm not sure. I don't think that kind of a world really would accomplish that. Mm-hmm. Because people would see Jesus just simply as a drug. And they'd be high on Jesus all day long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what the, so again, let me emphasize, God gives enough evidence for those who want to believe to have their beliefs justified, but not so much evidence that those who don't want to believe will find, uh, find themselves compelled to feign loyalty. Because frankly, by the way, feigned loyalty is no more than rebellion, waiting for an opportunity to rebel. Mm. Yeah, at this point, I'd like to remind everyone about... Everything we do here is listener-supported. It's supported by donations from people like you who freely support what we do here. And so I'd like to ask for your support. First off, your support through CYI Worldwide, because we've got a whole list of shows and programs and ministries that we do, and that includes the Deeper Waters podcast. But let's suppose you want to donate to Deeper Waters specifically, well, you can go to deeperwaters.wordpress.com and you'll find a donate button there. And that can take you to risenjesus.com, which is the ministry of my father-in-law, Mike Lacona. And you can make a tax-deductible donation there. And after you do that, send an email to Mike and Debbie, my in-laws, and say, Hey, I made a donation to Nick Peters of Deeper Waters and I want to make sure it goes to him. And you make sure they will make sure we get every penny of that donation. You can, you can also... Sorry about that. I was clicking on something wrong. Anyway, sorry about that. It's, it's okay. You can also uh, support us through the Amazon store on my account and any book that you buy there. A little bit of that goes towards Deeper Waters. And, of course, we've got some e-books out. We've got, especially the latest one, Defining Inerrancy, written with my ministry partner, J.P. Holding, and myself. And I'm due to have one out soon, which is a response to several modern atheists, including Richard Carrier and others. And any purchases of those go to help support Deeper Waters. Uh, Dr. Jones, do you have any cause you'd like people to support? Well, I wasn't prepared for that question, but if I a cause that I'd like people to report uh, support is I'm a big fan of the Voice of the Martyrs. Mm. Uh, I I just think that especially now with so many Christians being martyred, so many Christians dying for their faith, that anything that we can do to support uh, martyred Christians, I think, is a wonderful thing. So I I'm a I'm a personally a big supporter of the Voice of the Martyrs. My wife is in the room with me, and when you said that, she just thrust her fist in the air triumphantly. She she really likes voice of the martyrs. We've got a martyr where, or someone on the front lines we're praying for. we got the map, and we're hoping to put it up, say, here's where Christians are being persecuted. And if you check her Facebook, she's constantly putting things up about the Christians, for instance, being crucified right now. Well, praise God for that, because we Christians are under siege. And I just think we need to stand with them. And one of the ways we can stand with them, since they're way over, most of them are in the what they call the 1040 window, is to be giving, you know, giving our money to support them. Yeah. Well, you know, that brings us to another aspect of free will that I think is worth mentioning. We like to listen to a lot of contemporary Christian music when we drive, and 
One song that's really gotten my attention lately is Matthew West has a song out called Do Something, where it starts with him complaining to God about all the evil in the world, and saying, hey God, why aren't you doing something? And his answer is, I did something. I created you. <laughs> the idea that, you know, too many of us Christians look at all this evil in the world and say, where isn't God going to do something? And what I like to ask him is, have you ever considered that you could get Judgment Day and God might ask you the exact same question? Well, I think that, that's exactly correct. Uh, that's exactly correct. Mm -hmm. We have an obligation. You know, people talk all the time, and, and it's, I think people go, blah, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. That we really are the body of Christ on earth. Mm -hmm. Jesus doesn't have a physical body himself. and You know, he's not walking around like he was. Uh, in the first in the first three decades of, of the first century, mm. we're the body. We're the, we we've got the hands, we've got the feet, we've got the mouth, and it's our job to be acting for Jesus on this earth, and to be doing what? To be trying to solve the problems of the various kinds of evils that occur, trying to meet them, and of course uh, again helping helping those who are suffering for Christ is one of the ways of doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I've been in this email debate with an atheist and and I brought up all these tragedies, he says, Why doesn't he says, Why doesn't Christ appear to people who suffer at the hands of natural disasters? And I say, He does. It's through sure. the church. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's and it's our job mm -hmm. to stand up and help people in those situations. In fact, not only is it is it a good thing for us to do, the Lord commands us to help as we have the opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. I wrote a blog post maybe a month or so back called uh, Gentlemen, We Are at War. And the whole point being that our nation today is in a cultural battle and too many of our Christians are going to churches and just having spiritual pabulum given to them so that they'll go home and feel good about themselves. And like, like if we're the church and our nation is in this kind of situation and there is so much depravity going on around us. We should not be going to church and feeling good about ourselves. We should go, be going to church and feeling miserable about ourselves because we are failing at the Great Commission. Well, indeed, we let, 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 let us work hard. But, you know, that leads me to heaven. Yes. Uh, because i got to tell you, and, and uh, I don't know if you want to bring it up yet, but to me, heaven is the key to the Christian uh, being motivated. I've, mm -hmm. I've gotten, read through a lot of leadership journals, which is a publication put out primarily for pastors. And often they'll say, how do we get people motivated to serve? And the answer to that, in my opinion, is very simple. We need to get people focused on eternal life. Mm -hmm. uh, and people say, well, that's, that's, you know, sounds like a cop-out. It's not a cop-out. In fact, it is exactly the kind of thing that we need to do. Mm -hmm. And and but people will say, well, no, uh, you know, uh, it, we don't want to be so heavenly minded. We're yep. no earthly good. And whenever I hear that, I find that to be just crazy talk. Mm -hmm. It's just the opposite. As, right. it, as people get focused on the glory that awaits them in heaven, you'll find that they do more, not less. And mm -hmm. so, uh, anyway, uh, in fact, as C.S. Lewis wrote, he says, yep. you'll find that those who do most in this present world are exactly those who thought most of the next. That's exactly correct. And when, by the way, when it comes to the problem of evil, then, we 
and, and this is amazing to me, Nick, and I don't exactly understand why. I, I kind of have an inkling of it, but why so few Christians that write and teach on the problem of evil even bring up at all eternal life, because to me, eternal life has a tremendous amount to do with what's going on with mm-hmm. why God allows evil. Right. In fact, I suggest to everybody that what we're learning here is that sin is stupid. <laughs> and we need that knowledge that sin really is a horribly stupid thing to do. Right. Because as we get the knowledge that sin is terribly, terribly stupid, it prepares us to be in heaven forever with Jesus, where we can have free will, yet not sin. Why? Because we've learned that sin is very, very stupid. <laughs> now, now, that's not the only reason uh, that we're learning lessons here, but but remember, in heaven there will be no world, no flesh, no devil. The devil will not be tempting us. We won't have a body like we have now. There won't be a world where we're one click from pornography. And not only that, hell will be an eternal reminder to free beings of the horror of sin. But finally, and ultimately, we are learning here the stupidity of rebellion against God. And when we get to heaven, we're going to, it's not that we're going to forget that, we're going to remember that, that very simply, that sin is stupid. <laughs> and so that's the lesson, for, in my opinion, that's the gigantic lesson that we're learning here, and that is that sin is a very stupid, stupid thing to do. Yeah, my, my wife's uh, smiling over here. If she knew it wasn't being recorded, I'm sure she'd be busting out laughing at this one and saying, Amen, Amen. And it was kind of scary to me because when you were saying, People are so heavenly minded and earthly good, and then bring up C.S. Lewis, what he said in response to saying, Yeah, that's the exact same, the exact two statements that I was thinking of at that point as well. And it, I think it's also important to point out that we can have many, many different ideas of what heaven is like, but I, I think your viewpoint would work with all of them. Well, why? Uh, I. And I think that we need to teach a lot more. I think, frankly, Christians don't spend a lot of enough time thinking about heaven. Mm-hmm. In fact, I know that's the case because I've been in pastoral ministry and I talk to lots of Christians all the time, and they don't even think about heaven. But think about now heaven, how heaven relates to the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. If eternal life is true, if it is true, if it is true, mm-hmm. then eternity will dwarf our suffering to insignificance. Mm-hmm. I can't emphasize the, the importance of this, that eternity is going to dwarf our suffering here to insignificance. Right. Um, think about it. If you inoculate a child, I've done the math on this, if you inoculate a child against measles, let's say, when she's five years old, and the child cries for ten minutes, well, we know exactly how much suffering that you create, or what duration of suffering, I should say, you've created in that child's life. Uh because if the child lives to 100 years old, and you make the child cry for 10 minutes uh, out of 100 years, that's point zero 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 five two five six percent of that child's life. You've made that child miserable for zero 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 five two five six percent of that child's life. Now, if that child came to you, at, let's say in their 40s or 50s, and said, Guy, you know what, you made me cry for 10 minutes. Uh, out, out of my, you know, and, and if, let's suppose she knew she'd live for 100 years, you made me cry for 10 minutes out of my 100-year life, you think, I've raised an idiot as a child. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's a very, very small time. Now think about this. 
what is a hundred years of suffering out of eternity? Mm. What percent? What percent is a hundred years of suffering out of eternal life? Mm -hmm. It's no percent uh, because eternal you can't you can't compare it. That's why when Paul says that uh, he says for this light and momentary affliction in Second Corinthians four is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's not exaggerating. When he says this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, and he says beyond all comparison, he means that literally because you cannot compare finite, su finite suffering with eternal life. You can't compare it. And so I say again, eternity will dwarf our suffering to insignificance. But somehow, unfortunately, Nick, this is, this is missing in a lot of theodicy. I'm shocked as I read other Christians' writings, and I'm not saying they all miss it. In fact, C.S. Lewis certainly didn't. For C.S. Lewis, talking about heaven was a huge part of his answer to why God allowed evil. But I'm just saying a lot of people, for some reason, really miss this. And if we're going to get serious about having something substantive to say about why God allows evil, eternity has got to be a lot of that answer. And if we're willing to talk about what Paul's uh, light and momentary sufferings where he was talking about in Second Corinthians 4, we just need to hop on over to chapter 11, and he talks about what those sufferings were very distinctly. Yes, he does. And I'm also thinking about a Peter Crace book right now, Heaven, the Heart's Deepest Longing. And right. Gary Habermas has said it, apart from the Bible, it's one of the five best books he's ever read, and I have to agree with that. It, it is a book that would just, when you're done, you would be filled with joy from having read it. I agree. I, it, Paul prayed in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. He says, I pray that the Lord would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and your knowledge of him. He says, the, the eyes of your heart should be enlightened for what? So that you would know the hope that he's called you to, and I find seven hopes in Scripture, by the way, mm. the hope of uh, the hope of redemption, uh, the, the hope of the hope of eternal life, the hope of glory, uh, and so on. That these are things that are, are, are about heaven that we're going to be glorified. Uh, that and then he says the hope that you've been called to, the riches of our glorious inheritance. Namely, that when, what are we inheriting? We're inheriting the kingdom of God. Mm. We're getting this all. That's why Jesus said, uh, fear not, little flock, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Um, and so, and then he says, the hope that we've been called to, and then the rich, and then the surpassingly great power that's at work for those who believe. Yeah. Christians have got to focus on the glory of eternal life, and because we don't, frankly, it makes our Christian life paltry. Mm. And it makes it incapable of really dealing with our, the sufferings of this world, and not only that, it makes it impossible for us to deal with the lust of this world because, as I wrote in one of my blogs, we were born to lust. And you're going to either lust after people, possessions, positions, and pleasures, or you're going to lust after God and his kingdom. But one thing is for sure, you're going to lust. Mm -hmm. And so whether, and I mean whether you're a man or woman, you're going to lust. And by that, by lust, by the way, I only mean that we have strong desires, that God wanted yeah. to create us with strong desires. And you're going to you're going to desire something, and like I say, you're either going to desire something from a worldly perspective, or you're going to desire God and His kingdom. But you are going to set your heart after something, and and uh, because Christians are not doing this, and because 
heaven is is an it's just a PS to the Christian life. It's an orthoran doctrine. Because of that, Christians have a very weak Christianity, in my opinion. With the uh, lusting, you said, First Timothy three has such an example. It says, "He who lusts after being an overseer lusts after a good thing." It's just really a strong desire. And there's another aspect that eternity focuses our hearts in different ways. That, as I said, I performed a wedding last Saturday, and I was talking with the groom privately before the ceremony started, you know, asking the same questions. Okay, do you really want to go through with this? Are you sure you're ready? And asking, what do you want out of your marriage? And one aspect I told him, I said, I want you to get this clear, okay, that according to Ephesians, one day you will stand before God, as Ephesians 5 says, and you are given an account. And it will not be just an account of how your life turned out. You will have to give an account of how your wife turned out as well, and about the raising of your children. You're called to give an account of all of those, and... I've told several husbands that if you read a passage like Ephesians 5 and read that you're supposed to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and you don't feel a chill, chill at that point, you don't get nervous when you read that, there is something wrong with you. Indeed. Uh, well, anyway, again, I sure agree. Heaven, the fact that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and that those who trusted in him, are going to be ushered into a kingdom where there is no mourning, death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will be passed away. And not only that, but see, one of the things that people need to realize is God has called us to reign with him mm-hmm. forever and ever and ever and ever. Right. And that's lost, like, even the whole idea, any idea of reigning with Christ, frankly, is gone in the Christian community today. Uh, you know, but it says in Second Timothy 2.11, here's a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. And it says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Now, what does that mean? God intends to give us the kingdom so that we can do with it what we want to do. That's what it means. Uh, and so, in fact, the very last verse of the Bible before you get to the, in Revelation, before you get to the epilogue, the epilogue is don't add to these things, don't take away from these things, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm coming quickly, that's the epilogue of Revelation. The very last verse of the last book of the Bible before the epilogue in Revelation is, and they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Mm-hmm. So God's plan for us is to reign, but what that requires, what that means now is, is that we're learning to conquer evil with good here, we're learning to discern the difference between good and evil, and then we're learning to conquer evil with good. That's what we're learning in this life here. Mm-hmm. And so and so, how does, this, how does heaven relate to the problem of evil? In my opinion, it's all about the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. That God is intending to set us free, he's going to set us loose in his kingdom, well, we can do what we want to do because we've learned here that sin is stupid. Well, here comes the skeptical objection again at this point. Saying, okay, Dr. Jones, you believe in this uh, paradise heaven for all these people who love God and do what he says. But on the other hand, you've got all these people who don't and they get to suffer eternal torment forever in hell. I mean, isn't that part of the problem of evil just as much? 
Well, I'm glad you brought that up, and I, because I think hell is one of the most difficult things to talk about. My answer to that actually is pretty simple. Uh, you know, one, let's not forget, you don't have to go to hell. You don't like it. See, if you if you buy into what I said, that God gives enough evidence so that those who want to believe will have their beliefs justified, mm. but not so much evidence that those who don't want to believe will be compelled to feign loyalty. See, what you have then is people that go to hell. They don't want to believe. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples of this, because I've collected these things over the years. John Paul Sartre said, the last thing I want to be subject to is the unremitting gaze of a holy God. Uh, uh, for instance, um, Frank Sinatra's life song was, I did it my way. Mm-hmm. In fact, his, the last words of his song was, for what is a man, what is he God, if not himself, then he is not, to say the things he truly feels, and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows, I took the blows, I did it my way. Um, Jack Nicholson once said, hey, you can have whatever rules you want, I'm going to have mine. I'll accept the guilt, I'll pay the check, I'll do the time. Mm-hmm. You know, William Ernest Henley said, it matters not how straight the gate nor charge of punishment the school. I'm the master of the faith and the captain of my soul. And I could go on and on. Mm-hmm. I've got a lot of exa- more examples than this. What I'm doing with this is saying, do you notice these people are going, I don't care if there's a God. I have no intention to serve him. I'm doing it my own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong put it this way. Listen to this. He's talking about the God of the Bible. He says, he's a God I cannot respect, much less worship, a deity whose needs and prejudice are at least as large as my own. This is coming from an Episcopal bishop. Now, why have I told you all this? I've said this because, frankly, I agree with C.S. Lewis's point that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Mm-hmm. I think that what you're going to find with the inhabitants of hell is that they simply would not want to be in heaven. Right. Oh, I think they'd want to be in heaven. If heaven happened to be a place where they could rule and do what they want, sure, they'd rather be in heaven. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think the point of the matter is, they're not going to want to be in heaven if heaven means that they're going to have to submit their will to God's will. <laughs> As in, bear the reign and hair of and to serve in heaven. Right, yes, Satan's famous line in uh, that Milton has been saying in Paradise Lost, exactly. Yep. Uh, Mark Twain said about the God of the Bible, he says, he says, I want to stay out of his reach. The character, the caricature of him, which one finds in the Bible, he says, we, that one and I, could never respect each other, never get along together. I've met his superior a hundred times. In fact, I amount to that myself. Why should we believe that these occupants of hell aren't going to be such a actually thinking the same thing while they're in hell. I don't think we have any reason to believe that the occupants of hell are going to be going, God, if I'd only known, I wouldn't be be here. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the case. I think the occupants of hell are going to be exactly where they want to be because an eternal punishment is fitting for the eternally unrepentant. I think one of the scariest things to think about, really, and I think it's entirely true, is that in the end, God gives people what they want. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. I think that's exactly correct. At the end, God gives people what they want. Well, let's discuss another aspect of all this, because we've been discussing all this on an intellectual level. And one thing I always like to point out is that if we've got someone who's really suffering right now and hearing something like this, a lot of the intellectual discussion 
isn't going to really help them at that point. I've told people before that if you're ever a pastor at a church and a woman comes to you and she's crying because her teenage son just died in a car accident, if you turn into an apologist or a philosopher at that moment, I will come over and smack you. I, I, I'm glad to say I completely agree with you so that I can avoid the smacking. <laughs> um, I, I agree 100%, Nick. Look, mm-hmm. the scripture teaches in Romans to weep with those who weep. Mm-hmm. Weep with those who weep. Somebody who's just suffered a loss does not need an explanation of what God's doing right. at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they need is somebody to, they need a shoulder to cry on. Mm-hmm. They need someone to weep with those who weep. That's what they need. Mm-hmm. Somebody that's just lost a child needs someone to be compassionate and loving towards them and not to sit them down and say, well, let me explain the big things of the universe. Right. Similarly, you know, a lot of people, sadly a lot of Christians will do this, they'll kind of give these cop-out answers. And the cop-out answer is, oh, it's all going to work out okay in the end, or mm-hmm. God works everything out for his good. Mm-hmm. You know what? They don't need that either, right. frankly. They don't need that. Mm-hmm. What they need is someone to love them, they need someone, they need a shoulder to cry on. That's the kind of person that they need, uh, and that's what we need to be at the time. Not to give them a quick bromide, not to just simply say, oh, well, God will take care of it, he's going to work it all out. Mm-hmm. You're going to see the meaning of it one day and rejoice in it. Now, that being said, there does come a time when somebody has suffered severe loss mm-hmm. where they want to understand right. God's plan. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then we need to explain it to them. Mm-hmm. But somebody who's just suffered a loss just needs love. Yeah, and I can't emphasize that enough. I agree with you 100%. Yeah, I think mean, if I was in that position of someone coming in that kind of situation, one of the first things I'd want to do for them after listening to them is I'd say, I'd try and get in contact with my own wife somehow and say, Honey, can you talk to this person some? Because she is far, far better at the empathy thing than I am. Uh, I, I cannot relate that way, that level, but um, when she's done that for me, she, the person's ready to talk about it from an intellectual level, she's like, oh, well, my husband will now be glad to talk with you about that because I'm the one who'd be far best at dealing with it on an intellectual level. Sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there, like I say, there does come a time mm-hmm. where we need to explain the grand plan, yeah. but uh, it's not when somebody has just suffered an immediate loss. What they need then is love and compassion. And it strikes me when I think about the atheist problem raising about going against God with the problem of evil thing where you're complaining about the problem but the sad thing is you're killing the only solution that we have and if you want to take away God what are you going to replace it with what hope are you going to give humanity I'm not saying believe in God believe in Christianity because it gives you hope but if you're going to give people a coherent worldview where they've got something to look forward to some hope, something they can put their trust in, some reason for the evil, what are you going to give them? Because, frankly saying, you're part of a meaningless accident just doesn't seem to do it. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right, of course. And, and one of the problems of evil that atheists face is, why do humans like to hurt each other so much? Mm-hmm. And that's the, prob- that's the type of problem of evil that atheists really don't have a good answer for. Uh, why do humans not just kill, but like to do, like to torture, because frankly, if you really look at it, it's not just that people are satisfied killing, they like to, they look, well, they like to do Auschwitz. Yeah. Uh, there's something terribly wrong with humankind, and that's very difficult for atheists to answer. Uh, you know, they do 
face their own problem of evil. But for the most part, however, I don't spend much time going there because, you know, I mean, it just points to the meaninglessness of life, one, which, of course, atheists, as you're right, the atheist existence struggles to have any meaning uh, because there's no nothing transcendent to them to give it any meaning. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I would warn the listener on, though, is that we need to be careful that, because I, I saw a debate, I, I was in the audience of a debate between Dinesh D'Souza and um, uh, Peter Singer, the, uh, the ethicist of, uh, from uh, Yale, or Princeton, Princeton. University, rather. Yeah. Uh, and Dinesh D'Souza went on and said, yeah, but think of all the terrible things that happen to society if there really is no God. And Peter Singer dismissed all of it, with just, and, and frankly, he was right, just brushed it off immediately and said, just because the news is bad doesn't make it untrue. Right. And, and so we, the listener needs to be careful that, yes, it's true that the atheists have a hard time giving any meaning to this world of horror and suffering, uh, this, you know, this, this life that is nasty, brutish, and short, that it's true that atheists have a hard time giving an answer to that. But that doesn't make their, but of itself, the sense of what the, the view results in doesn't make it untrue of itself. Mm-hmm. But the thing with what we usually see going on also, is something we talked about earlier about when the atheist complains about all the evil, I usually find me end up, end up saying, yeah, well, I'm basically a good person, though, and for the most part, in some ways, I don't deny that. I mean, I love my family, I take care of my kids, and so... I mean, God's not going to have anything against me on the last day. And meanwhile, myself, a Christian, I'm constantly looking at myself and saying, Phew, I wonder what God's going to have to say about me on the last day. Well, this is where I think we need to do, I'm reminded of Ray Comfort's ministry, this is where I think we need to do uh, what Jesus did. And that is, he, you know, I would ask such a person, have you ever left it? Mm. And of course they're going to say, have you ever left it after another person? Especially uh, if you're talking to a man, and of course it's also true for women. Yeah. Of course they're going to say, "Sure, I've left it after lots of people that I, if they're honest, that I'm not married to." Well, the scripture says that that's adultery, and the reason you're not actually doing it, by the way, is because the cost-benefit analysis hasn't worked out for you. Otherwise, you would be an adulterer. Because if you're fantasizing about having sex with someone you're not married to, the question is, well, why aren't you doing it? Well. If you think you have the opportunity, isn't it that the cost-benefit analysis isn't working out in your favor? Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with murder. If you hate somebody, John says in First John, he who hates his brother is a murderer. And we mm-hmm. know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Mm-hmm. And I would point out, I, I think we need to do what Jesus did, where he says, if you lust commits adultery in his heart, and tell these people that if you lust and hate, you're an adulterous murderer. Mm-hmm. So you're not a good person. You're an adulterous murderer. Mm-hmm. And that's a message that people don't want to hear. By the way, a student came up to me one day and said, uh, is this a message we really want to get out, even about how sinful humans are? And I immediately replied, well, Jesus said in John 7, 7, the reason the world hates me is because I proclaim that what it does is evil. So WWJD. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you're, let's be like Jesus and proclaim that what the world does is evil. But the world isn't good. So anyway, Nick, I would not allow a non-Christian to say to me, I'm a good person. I would immediately, gently but firmly say, no, 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 you're not. And start to say, have you ever told a lie? Sure, well, you're a liar. Have you ever lusted? 
Well, then you're an adulterer. You ever hated somebody? Well, then you're you're an adulterous murderer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would not let them get away with I'm a good person. Yeah, one thing I say is that every sin ultimately is some form of divine treason. Well, I think it, well, yes, I think that's right. Why? Because once you've decided to willfully disobey God, once you've decided to willfully disobey Him, the fact that on any point, the fact that you may obey Him on other points doesn't mean anything. Why? Because you've only decided to obey Him on other points because you happen to agree that those things are good. Because once you've decided, I am going to willfully disregard God's command on a particular topic, or whatever it is, then you're now the God of the universe, in your own life anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I see your thing that one great example I can think of of a problem of evil, unfortunately, right now, is that this conversation, sadly, can't go on forever, because Indeed. it's been really educational and really learning, but it's only a two-hour show, which... Probably surprises some people. I was talking to my aunt just a few days. Just, How can you think of what to say for two hours? Like, oh, it's a lot simpler than you think it is. That's but right. we're getting to the point of wrapping up. So, Dr. Jones, if a lot of people have been listening and saying, hey, I really like what I'm hearing from this guy. I really wish I could find out more. Do you have a website or anything there that uh, you can recommend people go to? I, well, I encourage people to go to my blog. PlayJones.net. Uh, I've written a lot on the problem of evil and a lot of other things, you know, related to that and just Christian life things and other apologetics issues. PlayJones.net. Uh, I encourage people. By the way, I like to connect with people on Facebook. Mm-hmm. If anybody wants to connect with me on Facebook, I'd be glad to do that. And I know that you and I are Facebook friends. Yep. Uh, so I encourage people to connect with me on Facebook. But here's the big thing. Uh, if you think, ah, I'd like to hear more about the teaching of the problem of evil, if you have a bachelor's degree, you could join our Master of Arts in Christian Apologetics program, uh, and you could take my class, which is a required class, by the way, entitled Why God Allows Evil. I teach for 24 hours on why God allows evil, and you can hear the entire, the entire class. And let me just say, by the way, our distance version of the class, where you come out where you, you basically stay where you are, but you just come out for two weeks, one or two weeks during the summer. It's an excellent program. It's every bit as good as our on-site program. And uh, anyway, you can hear my 24-hour lecture series on the problem of evil. That's a lot of fun for me, and, and uh, I think, I think uh, that that would give you a, a real understanding. And I plus, if I may say, a whole program, a whole Master of Arts in Christian Apologetics program at Biola University is a very good one, if I do say so myself. Yeah, I, I was going to remind everyone that it is at Biola, and in fact, four weeks from now, we're going to have Oscar Smith, one of your colleagues, again, come on and show and talk about more questions, which that's something we didn't even get into, the standard of good and evil here, so he's going to be on in four weeks. Excellent. Now, with only a few minutes left, about three minutes or so left in the show, is there any final message you would like to leave with the Deeper Waters audience? Yes, uh, two things. One, really, when you see non-Christians and when you see what non-Christians do, what appears to be good things, examine really what's going on there. Two, most importantly, something that is really a struggle for Christians, start to make heaven your focus. Mm-hmm. The book you recommended by Peter Kreef is excellent. Read that book. Start to think about heaven. Start to think about what it's about. 
I've got a blog on why I, entitled Why I Look Forward to Eternity. I encourage Christians to read Why I Look Forward to Eternity. Uh, anyway, Christians desperately need to think more and more and more and more about heaven. We don't think about it enough. And so that, if, I, if there's anything I could uh, plea uh, for Christians to do, it would be think a lot more about heaven and what eternal life is going to be about and make that the focus of your life. In fact, I encourage people to memorize Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, which is about setting our minds on heaven. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Jones, it's been a very interesting two hours here. I certainly hope you've enjoyed yourself, and we'd love to see you come back here again sometime. I have enjoyed myself, Nick, and I'd be honored to come on your program again. It's just a pleasure to be able to talk to you for a couple of hours now. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And I can remind everyone that next week, David Capes from Houston Baptist University is going to be my guest. We're going to be talking about The Voice, a new Bible translation that's come out. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off. It's here, the official Rock Radio mobile app. Listen to your favorite rock radio programs on your iPhone, iPad, iPod, Kindle Fire, Android smartphones, and tablets. The best thing is, it's absolutely free. Download it now from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Or get a link at our website, cyiworldwide.com. Rock Radio, Christian radio that doesn't suck. You're listening to Rock Radio.